the Tom Sumner Program. Old Fashioned Radio for a New Generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Tom, easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm alright, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky day, Mr. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old fashioned radio for a new generation. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call the X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. This is Mayor Sheldon Neely, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Show. And welcome back, everybody, to this week's uh, edition of Armchair Politics Part 2. And uh, joining me for today's edition of Armchair Politics, we welcome back for the second half our uh, panel of political pundits, which includes on the left Flint's premier political pundit, Paul Rosicki. Paul, welcome back. Always good to be here. And on the right, longtime Genesee County Republican Henry Hatter. And welcome back to you. Thank you, guys. Um, as we uh, as we continue on with some of uh, the things that we've been talking about uh, in Lansing, uh, let's see, where did I maybe lost my place here? Oh, there we go. Michigan native and uh, Republican National Committee chairwoman Ronna McDaniel has said she is weighing a 2022 election challenge to Democratic Governor Gretchen Whitmer, according to uh, Politico this past Thursday. McDaniel said she was considering stepping down from her post and running for governor Wednesday at a closed-door meeting of RNC members in Dallas, Politico said, quoting unnamed sources. McDaniel could not immediately be reached for comment. The news that McDaniel is considering a challenge to Whitmer follows a Tuesday report in the Free Press that said Republicans believe Whitmer is vulnerable in 2022, but the party still lacks a top-tier candidate. Is McDaniel a top-tier candidate? (laughs) From my perspective, he is. She can throw a blow and she can take one. Do you think, you she, think she would bring along the, money. Would she bring along the Trump supporters pretty well? Uh, she has been able to um, stay out of that melee that we have between Trump and the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. She supported him, but right. have not 
really um, uh, come close to being uh, a driving force in his efforts because she represents all Republicans throughout the world. And she can't do that because all Republicans don't agree. She has to sit in a tenuous position to keep balance and stability in the Republican Party, and she's done that. And she's loyal to the Republican Party, as she would be to Michigan. I was I was wondering if, if the Romney name would hurt her among the Trump supporters, since Romney's certainly not, since uh, uh, Romney himself She doesn't now. use the Romney name anymore. She's not. Yeah, I, I realize not, that. Yeah, she doesn't yeah. use that anymore. <clears throat> so, my other thought was... With, uh, with, would John, is John James thinking about taking a shot at it again? I, I'm not sure about that yet. Uh, John James is probably still licking his wounds. And <laughs> yeah, he's, two, he's, he's had two close calls. Yeah, it's true. That's yeah, true. But, but he performed well. But yeah. what he didn't do was get the black vote, and that's likely to be extremely stable. Yeah, uh, and yeah. you don't see uh, probably much change in that because of the culture of the black community and their loyalty to the Democratic Party. Those are probably the two main names I would think of. I mean, are there, is there anybody else on the horizon who's likely to to gear up a campaign for next year? What about Weiser? <laughs> oh, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, oh, well. Well, you yeah, said, I think uh, he's going to. I think he's going to end up hiking in Argentina or something. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> no, but that, there are Republicans out there with that kind of capacity. But I, I just can't think of it, and they're not on the forefront. Yet. I mean, I'm thinking here. I mean, when you think about it, I mean, Rick Snyder came out of the. I mean, nobody had heard of Rick Snyder much before he, the, the, before what January of the election year, if I'm not mistaken. And Rick, Rick um, Snyder was was not a bad governor. He balanced the budget, even though he he made people mad. But a very unlikely. And he said, Republican. "Well, guys, you know, yeah. they cannot run a deficit, so we got to find some money someplace." So he taxed uh, retirement accounts, and everybody helped to pay for balancing that budget the way it ought to be. Everybody should pay for it. Well, I remember uh, to save the state. a couple of times asking uh, Lieutenant Governor Brian Kelly if he was uh, giving Governor Snyder Republican lessons. <laughs> yeah, because uh, Snyder got as much flack from the Republican lawmakers as he did from Democrats half the time. Yes, he did. Yes, yeah. he did. That's uh, because of those retirement accounts. Yeah. And, and, well, uh, you know, so, uh, Snyder, Snyder's strengths were also his weaknesses. Exactly. Yeah, he was a great number cruncher. He was a he was a he was a yes. uh, an accountant. But, a, but he, it was a time that the state calls for that kind of a guy. Yeah, in terms of balancing the budget, you got to give him credit for that. That was his strength. And and but the same thing at the same time, those same. Financial skills caused him to do some things like in Flint, where all you had to worry yeah. about was the bottom line, and that led to you know the water crisis and among other things. So yeah, you. But you're that's exactly right. where his subordinates were supposed to um, find out ways that they could do it without uh, creating criminal acts. For example, but, you can't but directly, you know, a budget that causes but people to suffer. But directly you know, or indirectly, 
the just the whole mindset of you know the bottom line that made him so skilled at balancing the budget and and reorganizing how the budget was uh, prepared and and presented and passed you know in terms of doing it two and five years out and all that um, was the same thing that led to the kind of mistakes underlings made in the Flint water crisis so that's and that's why I make the point that his strengths were also his weaknesses yeah, I mean, the point's often been made that $100 a day of, of the right chemical would have avoided the Flint water crisis. You know, and if you want to save money, well, you, you cut the chemical. It's $100 a day. It's not much in a multi-billion dollar budget. But uh, if, if you're going to worry about the bottom line, that's what you do, and that was exactly the problem. Well, I, I think he missed the boat on some of the people that he appointed. People should be skilled enough to know that you can bring down a whole system yeah. by causing uh, criminal acts to um, just be transferred down to where people suffer. You know, you can't do that. You can't change numbers on data. You cannot uh, uh, subject people to poisoning by something that you either did or you omitted from a process yeah. dealing with clean water. You know, uh, yeah. Well, and then... Back to Ronna McDaniel, um, how do you think, you know, we, we know already enough about her that she would be a good campaigner, but how would she be with governing? Any thoughts, any speculation? Well, she's certainly been around it. She's been around it all of her life. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Well, here, let's... But let's she's, she's, she's never held office, has she, of any kind? Outside of no, but she office. knows what yeah. works and what does not work. She knows what works. She's a savvy woman, just like the governor is, like our current governor and the attorney general. Even though we may not agree with them, but they have mm -hmm. the moxie to do the job. And that's what you want. You And yet you want them to be fair and be just to everybody else, but and not uh, so uh, divisive. You don't want a divisive government because that's what has happened in New York and other places around the country. We've been divisive. And sometimes these jobs and being supported by people back home who say, don't you do anything to aid or abet the opposite side. And then that puts you in a position where you, you, uh, you're vulnerable. But, you know, never having held elective office could be a weakness in the same way it was for Snyder, too. For all of his skills, the fact that he had not held elective office before made him, you know, a bit less skilled in dealing with the legislature and, and others in the political realm. Well, and, especially uh, on day one. Uh, yeah, exactly, exactly. So well, I, for the I mean, fifth... It might be an issue. For the fifth consecutive census... Michigan will lose a seat in the U.S. House of Representatives as the Midwest and Northeast continue to see modest population gains outstripped by those in the South and West. While it's not yet known that Michigan's uh, 13th Congressional, what they uh, 
Michigan's 13 congressional districts will look like, the announcement by census officials Monday will lessen at least somewhat the state's standing in the U.S. House and means that at least two current members of Congress will be put into one district. It also means Michigan will lose a vote in the Electoral College, which decides the presidency, as will other states losing House seats. Other states in the Midwest losing a seat include Illinois, Ohio, and Pennsylvania. How much will this affect Michigan's standing in the House of Representatives and its role in upcoming presidential elections? Oh, it'll be a notch down. Uh, but, but yeah, be, and I was going to say, if we, if, we, if we remain a competitive state, you know, a so-called purple state, I think we'll still be a major focus, and that looks like it's going to be true for a while. But as I say, we'll have a little less clout, a little fewer, one fewer electoral votes. In, in the, in yeah, and in addition election. to its politics, uh, Michigan, remember, Michigan would be the fifth largest, would have been the fifth largest industrial nation in the world 40 years ago. And we have money, we have resources, we have power, we have space, we have technology, we have everything. But whether the politicians can put together um, the... Uh, ingredients uh, to uh, overcome the loss of another uh, elector, uh, that's yet to be seen. But we can still be powerful because we have the resources. We have more water than anybody else in other states. We, we, have, we can do things that other states cannot do. We have great agriculture. We can grow food like the rest of the world cannot imagine. We can do a lot of things, but it takes a politics politicians with uh, good reasoning capacity to overcome this kind of stuff. Yeah, but the shift reflected has been going on for, as, as Tom said, for the last four or five decades. We used to have 19 members of the U.S. House. Now we're going to be down to 13, and we've lost some, one, a person almost every decade in the last, last five times around. And it that's true for most, most of the Midwest. It used to be 17. The, the law, uh, number of electors, yeah. I mean, the, uh, uh, people in the House, and then the, the two senators made it 19, right? No, we had 19. In 1970s, we had 19 members of the House. Uh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And the, but yeah. we've we, we okay. lost I somebody every, time, every, every decade. And, yeah. and that's been true for nearly all the Midwest as well, the Midwest and the Northeast. Too. The Rust Belt. Yeah, all of a sudden, exactly. that, that makes... Uh, the redistricting commission, the deciding factor in which two congressmen oh, yeah. face off, yeah. potentially. I mean, I've heard speculation. I mean, already people speculating about who could be thrown together, whether it could be probably suburban Detroit would be the area, but I've heard speculation yeah. about Dan Kildee and, and, and uh, tossing him together with somebody in the thumb area. I, I don't know, and nobody knows right now, obviously, but it's going to be a, a musical chairs kind of game. But probably it's going to be one of those is going to be the 14th district in Detroit. You're and probably the, right. Uh, and uh, I think it's the uh, 11th or 9th. The 11th, the other the well, other yeah, possibility too. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. those are kind those of marginal. Are going to be, you shift a few. Yeah. Uh, you're going to need 770 some thousand people per district. So some of those will have to enlarge. Yeah. You bring in yes. depending on who you bring into your district that can change the politics yeah. 
very dramatically. Well, we've got a break yeah. here, and uh, we'll come back and look at uh, what's happening in Washington when armchair politics returns after we let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us, we have some messages as well, so don't touch that dial. Don't click that mouse. More with Paul and Henry and me when, uh, when we return. Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. If you have traveled to a country with a widespread outbreak of COVID-19, CDC recommends you stay home and check your health for 14 days after returning to the United States. Take your temperature with a thermometer two times a day. Watch for symptoms like fever, cough, and trouble breathing. And if you feel sick or have symptoms, call ahead before you go to a doctor's office or emergency room. Tell the doctor about your recent travel and your symptoms, and avoid contact with others. For more information, visit cdc.gov. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe By from the Blue Hawaiians. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Ananick. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You are, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom. This is my favorite interview always. You, you, <laughs> it's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. Yo, speaking. Oh, dear. Honey, our car warranty is expiring again. So soon? It just expired last week. You don't even own a car! Not now, Dana. Your father's on the phone. Hey! Mom and Dad, you're being scammed! It's a robocall! Scammers are using new technology and clever tactics to make more and more calls that look legitimate, but are hard to trace. They can make it look like they're calling from any number, even from numbers of people you know. My robocall crackdown team is working with state and federal partners to stop the robocalls for good, but I need your guys' help. Don't trust your caller ID. Verify you're really talking to the person whose number appears when your phone rings. If you accidentally answer a robocall, hang up right away. Engaging in conversation will only lead to more calls. Use a call blocking app on your cell phone that stops robocalls before they interrupt your day. And if you do get a robocall, 
File a complaint with my office online at mi.gov slash robocalls. And mom, dad, please do not give your information out to these scammers over the phone. They're just trying to trick you. Well, at least they call. No, I get it. You're busy. But you know Janine's daughter is a doctor. She calls every week. A doctor. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. Hello, this is State Senator Jim Ananick, and you're listening to Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back to Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program with our roundtable regulars, Paul Rosicki on the left and Henry Hatter on the right. Now that he's signed the Democrats' uh, $1.9 trillion uh, COVID relief package, President Joe Biden is turning to the next items on his legislative agenda and laying the groundwork for raising taxes on wealthier Americans to pay for them. He is expected to outline the next step of his economic agenda during a joint session to Congress uh, this evening. Um, Biden has doubled down on vows he made as a candidate, saying that those earning more than $400,000 will see a small to significant tax increase. However, he's pledged that those under excuse me, under that threshold, won't see one single penny in additional federal tax. And he is already working <laughs> to make permanent several uh, major, albeit temporary, tax breaks for low-income and middle-class Americans that were part of the stimulus. These include expansions of the child tax credit and earned income tax credit, as well as more generous Affordable Care Act premium subsidies. Much of Biden's plan rests on reversing the Republicans' 2017 tax cuts, which were more heavily weighted to those at the upper end of the income ladder, though many key provisions will expire after 2025. How steep of an uphill battle is this for President Biden and Senate Democrats? Mm. Especially, very, uh, uh, yeah. I mean, the, the key thing yeah. is Joe Manchin and a few others like him who are Democratic Democrats, but on the edge. I mean, you, you need those fifty votes, and maybe in some cases sixty votes for a few of these things. So, it's it's going to be tough. Yes, it's going to be tough. And you know, and do you believe that only the people uh, who earn four hundred thousand uh, dollars? the people underneath that threshold are going to see no tax increases? I don't believe that. I believe that bills have a way of taking off in directions that we don't predict or anticipate. And we'll all be seeing tax bills in the mail. Well, the only risk there is, is maybe, you know, if there were inflation down the road, before, you know, I can recall some earlier bills where you set a limit, and then all of a sudden, a decade later, that limit became a fairly normal kind of income for people as yes. we had inflation. So that could be an issue. But, Re- remember um, the trap that uh, George H.W. Bush got into? No new taxes? Oh, yeah, right. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Henry, Henry's so right. He things to... have a way of... Uh, wiggling away from you you may intend not to tax that group but things yeah. happen yeah and 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 you know we we really don't want to hurt people who are hurting we don't want huge government out there um taking resources away from those that we have pledged relief from 
And uh, that's my fear. But I believe in my heart that everybody should pay taxes, no matter who they are. There should be no exemptions. They should pay a dollar a year or two dollars a year, five dollars a year, so that's that I mean. they buy they they buy into the system that yeah. supports yeah. them. Yeah. Of course, the reality is that many of these these increases just return things to what they were, at least in that direction, what they were of four years or a decade ago. So they're you know they're the, they're the rates we had had not that many years in the past. If 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 and when they happen, but as I say, the big question is going to be the Senate. It's going to be a tough sell there. And the bottom line is, there may, there's at least Biden's indicated there's room for negotiation too. Those initial amounts may may be modified if if there's a bill that can get through the Senate in some way. Uh, you know, I, and I I don't think that we have enough trillionaires or billionaires to carry our tax burden. I just don't see it. Uh, so uh, they have to produce more information to demonstrate that we can do this. I haven't seen enough mathematics. Yeah, and uh, some, of the math, some of the math that I've seen, Henry, is a little bit scary because we're talking about, like, for example, how these uh, uh, reversing these tax cuts would raise uh, 1.9 trillion dollars to cover the uh, COVID relief package, for example. Um, the money gets spent out for COVID relief right now. The mm -hmm. recovery takes 10 years. Yes. And and yeah, that no, math doesn't really quite work for me. You know, when you yeah, say this tricky. is how we're going to pay for it. Yeah, I, th I think we're going to be seeing the, the financial impact of, of the COVID thing almost like a World War II for years after the COVID thing is history. The financial impact is going to last much longer, whatever tax bill we have. Uh, it's, it's going to, you know, we, we've spent a lot of money uh, for this, this crisis, as I say, almost like almost World War II level spending that we certainly did then. And we came out of it as years went by, but it took us some years after World War II to to get things back in order after the huge amount of deficit spending during the during World War II. Well, well we're tipping right now on disaster. We we are spending more money today than we are making as a nation. Uh, you know, the, we're spending not enough money to retire our debt. The, we, we, the debt that we've accumulated now it used to be ten million dollars, ten billion, ten trillion. Uh, back in George Bush. Well, we're not only not chipping away at the debt, Henry, we're operating at a deficit, and that just continues yeah. to add to that mm -hmm. debt. Yeah. And, and then every every November we come out and say, well, you got to raise the debt ceiling. And then up goes the money that we never see and never talk about. It's sneaky. So we have to have some kind of trust in what people are telling us. And where you go to get that, I'm not sure. Well, President Biden Thursday kicked off a virtual climate summit attended by 40 other world leaders by announcing an ambitious cut in greenhouse gas emissions as he looks to uh, put the U.S. back at the center of the global effort to address the climate crisis and curb carbon emissions. 
At the White House summit, which took place Thursday and Friday, Biden committed the United States to reducing its greenhouse gas emissions by 50 to 52 percent below its 2005 emission levels by 2030. While the goals are a part of the Paris Climate Agreement that Biden rejoined upon taking office, they are non-binding and the administration has not rolled out a plan on how the U.S. will um, meet them. And maybe we'll hear more about that tonight. Officials said Biden and his team arrived at the final number in a meeting at the White House uh, last Wednesday morning. Will American business accept and meet this challenge? Well, you know what strikes me is that I, in many ways I'm, I'm struck by how many corporations are almost leading the challenge ahead of government in some ways. I mean, in, in terms of, again, thinking of the electric cars with GM, but so many other corporations, even without government mandates, have been taking some actions uh, to to limit their uh, their impact on the climate. So I... Um, I'm mildly optimistic that 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 may well happen, even, again, with governmental help, governmental incentives help. But even without that, I'm uh, I'm struck by how many large corporations are are looking at this in a very responsible kind of way. I I agree with you. I think that they're looking at it. But that look at that is not enough. Yeah. We have to have, we, we have to have something like, what Biden did, he says, bye, and this this was a thing that I kind of object to by the President Biden, and that by 1930, by 2035, we will have, we will be carbon free, right? We would have a discharge of relatively carbon, carbon free. Neutral. Yeah, carbon neutral. Now, well, the goal, that that the goal is to I, I, reduce I, emissions by uh, 50 to 52 percent of what they were in 2005, okay. um, according to That's the goal that's been set, and, and that that would mm-hmm. be accomplished by 2030. Uh, <clears throat> do you think that's possible? We're strongly dependent on fossil fuels. And, uh, and I, I just don't see that. I think the bar sounds uh, higher than it is. You know, what were our fuel emissions in 2005 and cutting them by half, you know, that's that's 15 years ago. And as Paul yeah. said, a lot of businesses have been actually trying to get out front of this and, and cut emissions. I, I see ads all the time for... Um, was it Amazon or Amazon Prime or something that's that's right launching yeah. so yeah. many electric vehicles and they're trying to you know decrease their carbon footprint? You mentioned uh, Paul GM. Uh, there are a number of companies that are you know starting to take this seriously and work in that direction. And that's and that's what led to my question um, because none of this is going to happen without American business accepting. And meeting the challenge. Yeah. Somebody mentioned earlier the you know man on the moon. You can't just go out and say we're going to put a man on the moon in ten years. But in a way, that's uh, you know we we couldn't do it without the cooperation of of business yeah. and research and development and all of that. And so is is this his 
is this his moment to say we're going to land a, a a man on a on a uh, uh, what Mars? Uh, no, no, no. Um, what I was going to say is on on a oh. um, uh, more eco friendly planet by two thir- thousand thirty. You know, I I, I wish uh, General Motors started this long time ago, and I was part of the process. And everybody who knows General Motors, that helped to drive General Motors into bankruptcy. The, the paying for the emissions that came off the foundry and out of stacks that drove processes, industrial processes and stuff, and to keep and to maintain a, um, a prescribed uh, level of CO2 and other um, byproducts of uh, combustion, at a level over city is extremely costly. I don't remember what it was uh, for Flint, uh, but uh, the, the, we had to get rid of the foundry, and it it, it reduced General Motors' um, ability to uh, maintain certain operations in this community, and it was extremely uh, cumbersome, and uh, the regulations were more punishing than it was to continue to aspire to produce vehicles. And, uh, the, uh, and corporate people had to make a decision, and that they did. And if driving the cost up, and with all of the insurance costs and all of that stuff, that stuff tumbled down the world's largest corporation. And uh, they have been trying to, and that's part of it. And we don't go back and say, that this was started a long time ago, how effective we are and what happened. We need to see the whole picture. You know, I think businesses also don't realize that in the long run that, you know, an ecological or climate disaster is, is terribly bad for business. You're not going to sell a lot of cars or anything else. People are worrying about rising water yeah. levels or hurricanes or tornadoes or, you know, a thousand other things like that. So, I mean, in the long run, if, if there really is... A, an ecological disaster on the horizon that's bad for business as well so so if, in their own self-interest they may, may want to pursue and go ahead with the uh, with try, trying to deal with the issue but the real problem is that <coughs> democrats and republicans have to come through they have to decide what the strategy is going to be with respect to the environment they well, have to come I'm, to some kind of agreement I, i'm They're, hoping that american businesses just charge ahead without them <laughs> yeah, there are times yeah. I think that's exactly what they're doing. They're, they're saying, well, it's nice the government's doing something, but to some degree, I see them acting on their own and, and almost cutting ahead of government in some ways. Well, that's good. Uh, you know, and that's what should happen. They're convinced that in order to uh, uh, stay in business, that they must uh, drive things that people want. It helps to improve the quality of life and safety and stuff like that. Uh, that's all part of the business model for large in industries. But still, we need people who we elect and send to Washington to accept responsibility for this planet, to give the American people a coherent strategy that will bring about all of these changes that need to happen by 2035. Uh, so, uh, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, well, I was thinking that maybe one advantage they have is that unlike government, which is so deadlocked on almost everything, 
that businesses yeah. can't take action if they decide to do A, B, and C. They can do A, B, and C. Very often we end up, uh, like I say, whether it's the city council or it's Congress, things get so deadlocked it takes forever to decide uh, what to order for lunch. So it, it, there may be ability to take quicker and more decisive action on the part of, of corporations as well. And then that's these, uh, uh, I think that we take to limits our individuality as part of, of, of the problem of not allowing businesses to come together or parties to come together. That is part of the problem. We, we, we've got to collectively decide something mm -hmm. at one time. We can't always be just about me, myself, and I. Yeah. It's got to be about we. Well, moving on, Republican Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina will deliver the GOP response following President Biden's address to a joint session of Congress tonight. The uh, decision gives Scott, the lone black Republican senator and the lead Republican negotiator on Congress's policing reform efforts, a prominent national platform from which to speak to the country and counter Biden's message. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell and House GOP Leader Kevin McCarthy announced on Thursday that Scott had been chosen to give the speech. Does the selection of Senator Scott um, is this an indication that uh, GOP legislators want to get ahead of the developing debate on police reform and possibly gun control? Uh, that, that's what when I, when I saw Scott's name, that was that was my thought, particularly on the police reform issue, especially. And uh, I, and you know, and I thought I, that's part of it. But there's another uh, position that's hiding in the cave there. What they want to do is, one, to demonstrate that African Americans are part of the process and the Republican Party. And secondly, uh, they want to hide some of the people who are flashpoints in the Republican Party. And uh, that people say, oh, no, you know, like Mitch McConnell and someone else, or maybe some of the more people who are critical of Democrats and don't want to work with them. Uh, but they give uh, Scott a chance to uh, kind of soften the hardcore Democrats and Republicans toward a strategy that we ought to follow. Scott's an, interesting, sure going yeah. Scott's an interesting choice because he... Um, has gotten a lot of attention without taking on a lot of hits. Yes. And again, particularly on police reform, he, some of his proposals are things that, at least I've seen a number of articles suggesting he might be able to work with Biden and, on some kind of a, a bipartisan bill for the first time in a long while. Uh, and that's where we need to go. Yeah. We need to, that's where we need to go. I think that Scott could do that easier than some of the uh, traditional yeah, Republicans, right. because the right. hardcore. Yeah, I, and I, I think, think that right the Republicans that, yeah. will allow Scott to uh, wade into these deep waters without a lot of flesh back. And, and Biden might be willing to reach out to him, and, and, and at least to yeah. some degree in that context. Unless he can converse him to transfer over to become a Democrat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
Well, Justice, Justice Amy Coney Barrett has been on the job since late October, but until now, because COVID kept the uh, justices apart, she had not been pictured with her colleagues. That changed Friday when the court released its new class photo depicting the junior, uh, the junior most justice with her colleagues. Class photo or no, the 49-year-old Barrett has made her presence known, pludging into work, actively participating in cases heard by telephone amidst the global pandemic. While there have been some clear signs that her vote has solidified the court's conservative majority in other areas, Barrett remains more of a mystery, even drawing some concern from her allies. That's because the court has not released opinions in the most controversial cases of the term dealing with issues such as the Affordable Care Act, Religious Liberty, Unions, and the Voting Rights Act. The newly released photos and videos suggest that the justices, fully vaccinated, might finally all be working out of the court building, which has been closed to the public for almost a year, leaving the majestic crimson curtained lined chamber empty. It could mean that in the tense final weeks of the term, there is a possibility that some justices could actually discuss these fraught issues in person, or at the very least, from the same building. They have already announced, however, that they won't physically take the bench for the remainder of the term that ends in June. Will uh, will SCOTUS, the Supreme Court of the United States, be more productive once they start meeting in full session next October? Hmm. Yeah, I think think they will, because uh, otherwise they may be packed. But they don't have to bring in new chairs. So... uh, you know, you don't want uh, the Supreme Court is where it ought to be right now. Gonna have to push it can another work table. out of this without growing more government. I think they'll push another need table a, up They to need the to bench. step forward, and they need to accept responsibility for the decisions they need to consider. And I think one thing they will do is try and define to define themselves as clearly a third branch of government. They yes. don't want to be seen as a pawn of either no. the White House or anybody else, and that to some degree has been an issue. So I think that, if yeah. you, among other things, they will try and define themselves as g- genuinely independent in some way. They'll make an attempt. Yeah, they got to show their oats. Whatever their partisan leanings might be. Yeah. You know, it, it, it really does seem as though, um, despite the fact that they've embraced technology a little bit this last year, which was pretty remarkable as anti-technology as the Supreme Court has been uh, throughout the last 10 or 20 years, um, that they they did kind of duck tackling some of the toughest things during the pandemic. I don't think they wanted to phone those in. Yeah, it could be, and or or may I? Just, I also kind of wondered whether or not that was a political decision to just let the issue simmer and see if it wasn't such a hot button issue twelve months in, in the future or at some point in the future. I don't know. Um, and and when they created the Supreme Court back in seventeen eighty nine, they wanted it to be independent, to have its own space, and to be. Uh, unafraid of making a decision. That's why they gave them adequate money and they gave them a life of uh, continued service. They have nothing to fear except criticism and they can, they can take that criticism because there are no consequences. 
you know, uh, if you're sure. safe like that, you can become yeah, the Greek God. That's election or anything. That's true. That's true. Yeah. That's so true. they need to accept responsibility. Well, on that note, we're going to accept a little responsibility and take a short break here um, and let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in edgewise. And uh, if you're streaming us, we have some messages as well. But we'll be back with the final segment uh, of Armchair Politics with uh, Paul and Henry uh, and the X-Files coming up right after this break. Hey, <laughs> this is the Unknown Comic, and guess what? You're listening to the Tom Sumner Show right now, and now, and now too, and even now. Our lives have been turned upside down by COVID-19. When a vaccine becomes available, it's critical that all of us get it. What we do as individuals will impact everyone's health, including those who can't get the vaccine. We won't get through this unless everyone takes part. Now is the time to get up to date on all recommended vaccines for both kids and adults. Experts say it's more important than ever for everyone to get their flu vaccine this year. And if you're older, you should get both the flu and pneumonia vaccines since both illnesses can make COVID-19 even worse. Vaccines are available at a lot of convenient places. So be an example for friends and loved ones and encourage them to get vaccinated too. We all want to reunite, travel, and get back to school and work. But that means we all need to get on board. This is the time to do what's right for each other. Get vaccinated. It's our best shot. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe Vi from the Blue Hawaiian. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Annan. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all It's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods and in the diverse city beyond. Where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air. Where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums. 
where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses, and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. get the uneasy feeling Rod Serling is behind one of those doors. Rod Serling. Rod Serling. What's this, the Twilight Zone? Where is everybody? I would have been headed for the Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone. If I go any lower, I'll be in the Twilight Zone. All right. Oh, but Jethro's right at home in the Twilight Zone. I'm in the Twilight Zone. Now, having made this little jaunt into the Twilight Zone, I got a feeling something strange is about to happen in the Twilight Zone. Hi, this is Ann Serling, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome back to the final segment of today's edition of Armchair Politics, The X-Files. Those weird and wacky stories that are strange but true like this one. A 71-year-old Florida woman riding with her daughter... (laughs) (laughs) Gotta be Florida. (laughs) Yeah, riding with her daughter on Interstate 95 suffered a gashed forehead Wednesday when a turtle smashed through the windshield of their car, striking her, the Daytona Beach News Journal reports. The daughter pulled over and got help from another motorist. According to a 911 recording, both were surprised by what they found. There is a turtle in there, the man can be overheard saying. A turtle, the daughter exclaimed. An actual turtle? The... The gas drew a lot of blood, but the woman was not seriously hurt. The turtle was likely crossing the interstate and got knocked into the air by another vehicle. I swear to God, this lady has the worst luck of anything, the daughter told the 911 operator as she tended to her injured mother. The turtle, on the other hand, had the best luck of anything. It has just a few scratches on its shell and was released back into the nearby woods, Port Orange police officer Andre Fleming said. Does it make you wonder why did the turtle cross the road? <laughs> I was going to say, that's to one the turtle. Guy. <laughs> Exactly. (laughs) That's one tough turtle. Gee. (laughs) Well, and turtles are tougher than you think. A pair of lions that were trying to get a drink found themselves face-to-face with an unexpected interloper as a curious turtle popped up from the water and started poking at them. Safari guide Reggie Barreto told Kruger Sightings, which posted the footage on YouTube, that the lions had stopped for some water after feasting on a zebra at the Mala Mala Private Game Reserve in South Africa. It was an incredibly rare sighting for me to film, Barreto wrote, watching the uh, turtle approach the lions that had blood on their chins from the zebra. It seems as though... Uh, the turtle was actually more interested in getting some of that blood as opposed to chasing the lions away. 
uh, as the footage showed, the lions seemed a tad annoyed by the determined turtle, but largely let it be. Uh, so much for crossing the road. Why would a turtle cross a pair of lions? <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> that's a pretty courageous turtle all the way around. Well, they, they have this hard shell on them, so they, they feel omnipotent. <laughs> Maybe so, yeah. Maybe that's why they live to be, what, don't, don't tortoises get to be, what, a hundred and some years old regularly? Uh, yeah. Well, yeah, if you can, you know, crash through windshields and poke right. lions, you, you yeah. know, not much is going to happen to you, I guess. That's true. Well, I bet this guy wishes he was a turtle. A California man was arrested in January and accused of hiding in a restricted area of Chicago's O'Hare International Airport for three months. The man told police that COVID-19 had rendered him too scared to travel home to California, so he hid in the airport, surviving on food provided by strangers, according to the Associated Press. United Airlines staff spotted 36-year-old Aditya Singh and requested identification. They said he removed his mask and presented a badge which belonged to an airport operations manager who reported it missing last October, according to the Chicago <laughs> Tribune. Uh, some of this stuff is just hard to believe. Singh faces felony charges of criminal trespass in a restricted area of an airport as well as misdemeanor theft charges. Cook County Judge Susanna Ortiz set bail at $1,000. Um, she also said if he came up with the money, he would be prohibited from returning to the airport, AP reported. Uh, let's see, where am I? Uh, um, the judge was concerned that an individual had remained undetected in a secure area for so long. The court finds these facts and circumstances quite shocking for the alleged period of time that this occurred, Ortiz said. Being in a secured part of the airport under a fake ID badge, allegedly, based upon the need for airports to be absolutely secure so that people feel safe to travel, I do find those alleged actions do make him a danger to the community. Um, is uh, shelter in place a potential defense for Singh? <laughs> yeah, maybe so. <laughs> I, I, when I saw the story, I was wondering, how did he eat for all those months? Did he have enough cash with him to go, it, go to this? Well, it says that, that, you know, strangers gave him food. Oh, hmm. Interesting. Okay. Well, and finally, a small porcelain bowl that cost $35 at a yard sale and turned out to be a rare 15th century Chinese artifact has sold at a Sotheby's auction or Sotheby's auction for $721,800, more than 20,000 times its original asking price. An unidentified Connecticut man bought the bowl from a yard sale near New Haven last year and later emailed photos to Sotheby's uh, seeking an evaluation. Appraisers determined it dates back to the Ming Dynasty of the early 1400s and estimated its worth at between $300,000 and $500,000. It fetched a much higher price as part of Sotheby's uh, important Chinese art auction in New York last month. 
Sotheby's said the uh, bowl was one of the major stars of the sale and it set off a four-way bidding battle. Um, is this further proof that yard sales have really good deals? <laughs> yeah, it's time to check out those garage sales. That's right. <laughs> well, that wraps it up for uh, Armchair Politics, and we still have a couple minutes left, and, and I do want to say uh, welcome back again to Henry. It's, uh, it's always you. great to have you. To yeah, it's good to have you back, Henry. Um, Thank but you. I missed you guys. I did want to mention something from uh, the list that Paul sends over uh, on Tuesdays uh, before Armchair Politics um, that I hadn't seen and and couldn't find. You know, I I poked around and looked for it. I I didn't look hard, but um, talking about this memo of understanding from Mott Foundation and others on uh, the future of Flint schools. What, What do you know about that, Paul? Well, I said it's, we're going to have a East Village Magazine will have quite a bit on it in the next issue, but apparently it's a very extensive uh, program where the Mott Foundation and 17 other groups in the community are going to come together and revive the whole Flint educational system in a very substantial way, including building a number of new uh, uh, school buildings around town, uh, bringing uh, Kettering University, Mott College, U of M, into a kind of citywide or countywide education program. Uh, as I say, I, I, can, uh, I, I don't have the memo in front of me right now, but it's about a six-page document that is nothing official yet. Nobody's, in fact, not everybody's even signed up for it yet, but it's an agreement tentatively between a number of groups to really revive the whole Flint community school system in a very substantial way. As I say, it's, I think... Uh, Harold Ford's already had an article online about that uh, at least once or twice, and the next issue of East Village Magazine is going to cover that uh, somewhat extensively. So it, and it remains to be seen where it's going to go, but it, it, at least potentially, it sounds like a really remarkable concept if, if they can really carry this off. Interesting idea, for sure. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and as I say, a very... Uh, I mean, we're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars being invested here between the Mott Foundation, State of Michigan, and Flint Community Schools. All will be pitching in some very, very large amounts of money to make this happen, if and when it does happen. Yeah, but Flint Community Schools doesn't have any money. I I, I know there's a thousand barriers there. I say it. Yeah. I say there there are 17 groups that have signed up for this and said they're they're supported in general and in theory. Yeah, I'm with Henry. I hope these don't turn out to be matching grants. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, the there's other a lot of details will be worked out. But, but there's something else that's wrong with it. We need to have a school culture that's willing to learn, that's willing to uh, utilize the do- 100% of the dollars that's spent for education, and that would be in a classroom most of the time. We, we can't go through the past and just doing what we've done. It has resulted in nothing but defeat and yeah. failure. We've got to have a new philosophy of education here in Flint. Well, that uh, brings today's edition of the Tom Sumner Program to a close. That's Smokin' George Winters, Tickling the Ivories. Let me know it's time to head on down the hall to the living room. But I'll be back tomorrow with another edition of the Tom Sumner Program. Jim Milanowski will uh, be my first guest tomorrow. And I want to say thanks to my uh, 
my cohorts, uh, Armchair Politics, uh, Political Pundits, uh, Henry Hatter and Paul Rosicki. Thanks, guys. Always good to be here. Thank you. All right. Good to have you back, Henry. Thank you. Good night, everybody. Okay, thank you. The Sumner Program is a live variety show. We want to acknowledge all of our guests who play such an important role in the show and our cavalcade of cohorts from coast to coast for their regular contributions. Most of the musical accompaniment was provided by people in or from the Flint area. Many of the pre-recorded portions of the Tom Sumner program are made possible by Flint's own Steve McComb and Pencil Sketch Recording in Nashville, Tennessee. If you have comments, questions or suggestions about the show, find us on Facebook. This is Prue Clearwater. Join us next time for another edition of the Tom Sumner Program. And thanks for listening.